Before today's show officially begins, I have a very important announcement. And that is, we've got coffee, we've got coffee, we've got lots and lots of coffee. Yes, all you alcoholics out there, all you neurotic maniacs, we've got coffee through Anarcho Coffee, a libertarian coffee company. It's called Morning Roar, named after our long defunct morning edition of articles we used to write on lionsofliberty.com. But now it's just a sweet ass coffee that you can wake yourself up with, be roaring for the day of liberty. You can find it at lionsofliberty.com forward slash coffee. Order some today. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Doggy, everybody, welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 125. Meaning you can find all the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL125. I am Brian McWilliams, the one and the only, the mighty, and yet the pitiful, all at the same time. You know, I'm like uh, like an ant. I can pick up a bunch of shit above my head, but very easily crushed underfoot. <laughs> That's me in a nutshell. Especially emotionally. <laughs> a rough week. Uh, I am, though. God damn it. You know, last week I had the benefit of actually having time. I wasn't exhausted. I wasn't dealing with any horrible work stuff. And I'll tell you, without going into too much detail, that I, uh, I'm i working right now with a government entity and uh, an ironic government entity from a libertarian perspective, <laughs> by the way, but working with a government entity and it has just been hot damn. Everything you could hope to expect from a more authoritarian leaning type of government structure and uh, just the bureaucracy dealing with it, trying to get anything done, trying to communicate the best ways in which things should be done from a position of knowledge and, uh, and just trying to get these people to sign off is like unbelievably difficult. And it is making my life a living hell right now. And the worst part is at the end of the day, whether it go right or whether it go wrong, you know who's going to get the blame, and it's not going to be them. It's going to be yours truly. So anyway, I've been dealing with that this week. And uh, as such, I have not had as much time to prepare and read up as uh, I would like. But still managed to get a lot of stories under my belt that I want to talk about, starting off with Justin Amash. And you probably are up to date on this and seeing that he had a tweet storm. To tweet, a tweet storm would be putting it lightly. He had a hurricane or tornado alley of tweets. He had a tweet tornado alley ripping asunder everything in his path, flinging RVs and trailer houses into the wind with his mighty, mighty tweet storm, which all took aim at Trump and allegations of obstruction. So Justin Amash read the redacted or unredacted, I guess, Mueller report or Mueller report. I say Mueller, you say Mueller. Eh, I like to, I like to think of him as a mule. Because you know what? Robert Mueller looks like Eeyore the Sad Mule, doesn't he? He's got the bags under his eyes. He's got that hangdog face. She just call him Mueller. Anyway, Justin Amash read the report and came to a very different conclusion than many people that I agree with came to, namely that he was convinced that there was, in fact, clear evidence of obstruction, that there was, in fact, clear evidence of underlying underlying crimes, 
that uh, came out from this investigation. However, there was no evidence of collusion agreeing with Mueller in that regard. So he went on this epic rant on Twitter about it, giving the Democrats all the red meat they could use. Because, of course, this is Justin Amash. He's in the GOP. He's in the Freedom Caucus, even though the Freedom Caucus voted to censor him for his tweets about this issue. And just basically revved the whole goddamn thing right up again. Now, from a very selfish point of view, from the Lions of Liberty point of view, this was a good thing in the way that the Lions of Liberty have hit the big time in that the interview with Justin Amash, which I will link to in the show notes, and which was a very good interview, happened uh, got about what a month and a half ago, maybe. That was linked to in the Washington Post. So for once in its life, the Washington Post has done something good, and that's linking to our podcast interview. Otherwise, complete trash. <laughs> but anyway, let me just examine this from a, from a whole. Because like I said in the, in the title of the episode, I have to ask myself, is this the war we want? Do we want Trump versus Amash? And I'll say from a very 10,000 feet up viewpoint that I just think this whole thing, this whole standard he's trying to set by saying it. And look, I, I understand the, the argument he's making. He's making the argument that Obstruction of justice exists, whether or not there's a crime that was actually committed or not, because if there were a crime committed and during the course of the investigation, the obstruction led to a prosecutor not being able to prosecute that actual crime. Well, then there you go. That's why it exists. And I understand that. I just don't agree with it. You know, I said this before when it first came out. I don't see where in the Constitution it says that you must bend over and get fucked in the ass by a prosecutor or by a government investigator on a crime that you say that you didn't commit. I mean, the the onus of finding that evidence is on them. And this obstruction of justice creation was put into place to make life easier for federal prosecutors, for uh, investigators in general, for the police state, to look into everything you're doing and to say, ah, you can't defend yourself. You can't even get in the way of anything we're doing here. Step aside. And I can see where people that are confused, or not confused, I should say, are very concerned with law and order and always think that the state is absolutely right and that the police are absolutely right all the time could say, well, this makes complete sense, just like Amash is doing. But that's where I'm a little bit surprised because he's been so good about government spying. He's been so good about government overreach that instead of him arguing that Trump obstructed justice, and again, I disagree. I feel like if Trump obstructed justice, he did so accidentally from a point of ignorance and his staff literally told him, no, you can't do that. In the case of uh, what McGahee or McGann, excuse me, McGann, uh, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I would rather resign than do that, Donald Trump, because that is obstructing justice. So he was told no, and Trump did not say, okay, you're fired. I'll find somebody else who will do it. He said, oh, okay, well, then never mind. Or his, his staff simply didn't do it, and Trump never followed up with it. So I just, I, I just, I'm, I don't buy into the whole goddamn obstruction argument. I don't buy into it from step one. So I, on a fundamental level, I disagree with Justin Amash here. But moving forward, like I said, he's been so good about fighting back against wars, fighting back against the, 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 the absolutely intrusive spying state. Why is he on this bent talking about how there's obstruction rather than looking into what Barr is currently examining now, which is, the overextension of 
applications to the FISA courts, the lies or the omissions by the FBI that allowed this fucking bullshit investigation to continue in the first place. I mean, that's what you should be paying attention to. Going after the president, whether or not you like him or not, over this nonsense obstruction garbage and trying to make it into some sort of grand standard that you have to set and you're defending the Constitution because you're so morally righteous. I just don't get why that's the pillar you're trying to climb when you've got a million different things that you've already stood strong on that are vastly more important. And I get that the breakdown between the checks and balances between the judicial and the executive and the legislative branches is important. And I agree that we should be examining that, but this is what you're going to base it on. Despite all of the other examples that you could pull out of that, all these other horrible, egregious overreaches that again, to circle back to war, why are you not looking at that? Why are you not using that to go on this epic rant about? rather than this obstruction charge, which is simply giving the Democrats more red meat, simply becoming more of a distraction that's already taken up $30 million, already taken up two years of public consciousness. And a a year and a half of that was based just upon the first false collusion allegation, which was enabled by the goddamn FISA courts. Just, it aggravates me that he's going after this. It just drives me up the wall. Now, let me take another step back here and say, all right, in general, is Amash versus Trump the fight we want? Is this the battle we want to see waged as libertarians? And that brings around to bear the question of whether or not Justin Amash is going to run for a libertarian candidacy in 2020. Will he leave the GOP? Will he actually run as a libertarian? And should he run in 2020? Is that more beneficial to us and what we believe in? And him having left the GOP to go to the Libertarian Party, for him having thrown his hat in the ring and campaigning hard and trying to, or even trying to primary Trump from a GOP perspective, which I think would be ridiculous. I think he's much better off leaving and running as a libertarian personally. But is that more beneficial than having him stay and be one of the strongest houses, or excuse me, voices in the house for libertarian values. Now, we still got Massey in there, but we're losing a vote. And there's no guarantee that he's going to resonate in the way that, say, Iran Paul did when he ran. Because by leaving the GOP, and again, you're already seeing the writing on the wall there, in my opinion, that the Freedom Caucus is already trying to censor It seems like Amash's voice, while still strong, has become more, I don't know, quieted these last few years because of the people converting to Trumpism. We're seeing that the monetary expenditures for war keep going up. We're seeing the military budgets continue to go up. We're going to deficit continue to grow. We're seeing uh, domestic operations as far as ways in which the government can spy on you, like facial, uh, facial recognition technology. Continue to ramp up. So I wonder if we're seeing Amash question whether or not his role as a member of the House, as a GOP member of the House, is even worth protecting. Is even worth trying to maintain in light of taking Trump on head on in the run up to the 2020 election. And I was thinking about this, you know, because this actually came up in our Liberty Draft. When I drafted Justin Amash in the first Liberty Draft a few years ago, 
that was the knock was that I put him, I think as my vice president in our assigned ratings, you know, we had a president, a vice president, all these other things. I think I put him as my vice president and people said, well, if you're going to take him out of the house, then you're losing somebody there to put him in VP and we can't lose that. But again, if we could look at him in the context of you've got people right now that are looking for a different alternative to Donald Trump currently because of the trade war ongoing, right? Even Trump's base, he's losing them because they wanted him to build a wall. He hasn't built a wall. They believe that he could revitalize and bring back jobs to their Rust Belt, their middle of America, their whatever it is. He's managed to do that somewhat. Now, granted, that's through crony capitalism. He's managed to do it. But at the same time, this trade war that he started is already starting to impact people. We're seeing the farmers impacted. We're seeing the steel workers impacted. We're seeing anybody that depends on steel imports be impacted by this. We're seeing the stock market decline. And as I said, I said, I think continuously, the only way I see Trump losing is if the economy crashes going into this election. Now that may happen. And China may be completely happy to let that happen, despite the fact that it's hurting their people just as much as ours, but I feel like they're more easily equipped to weather that storm. So the question remains, if Amash runs, can he make that dent? And I think that instead of waiting, let's say another four years, or instead of staying in the house, I think the time to strike is actually now. Now, I know Gary Johnson only got 3% of the vote and we had high hopes for him. We said, this is the two most unlikable candidates that have ever existed. But you still had a Democratic machine pushing Hillary Clinton. And you still see to this day people defending Hillary Clinton despite all the monstrous things she's done, despite the fact that she is a lizard person (laughs) living in a human skin, despite the fact that she wore burlap sacks on stage every time. Some sort of Oompa Loompa goddamn costume every time on stage. And that she seemed to have tuberculosis. Couldn't even stay on her feet. Just tumbling down the stairs. (laughs) Rolling in somersaults like those cute little dwarves of old. So you had Hillary Clinton on one side. Warmongering uh, black people destroying monster. And on the other side, you've got Orange Man Bad, who is saying all sorts of inflammatory rhetoric about immigrants who is promising to build a wall, who is promising to do all these horrible things, and at the same time promising all these great things. Horrible things to the left, great things to the right. But he's still a reality star. He's still a guy that didn't come in with any real concrete solutions. He just came in with a lot of bluster and arrogance, but he played well. He was comical. He promised people, just like the Democrats promised jobs and, uh, and welfare handouts. Well, they don't really promise jobs unless they're government jobs. But, you know, they promised to increase welfare and, and spend all this green money and to improve the lots of the people that are at the bottom of the rung, despite the fact that every one of their goddamn policies does the opposite. And you have Trump promising essentially the same thing in a different manner. You have Gary Johnson in the middle there, just derping around, not being able to deliver the libertarian message in any coherent fashion coming across as an idiot anytime he actually gets the opportunity, and he clearly would have been destroyed on a debate stage. Flash forward to the current state, you've got people that are running as rabid socialists on the left. Every single front runner, with the exception of Joe Biden, who I do not think will actually get the nomination, by the way. I think there's way too many identity politicking ideas going on. I think the Ukrainian uh, intricacies involved with him and his son my uh, car, my, my carpool, <laughs> my torpedo. Why did I say my carpool him? 
<laughs> kids, jump in the minivan. We're going to go carpool over to Joe Biden's house and kick him in the dick. Might torpedo his campaign. In the meantime, everybody else running has these insane socialist ideas. They want reparations. Kamala Harris has crazy ideas about getting equality in the workplace for women by penalizing people for the pay, pay gender gap, which we'll get into a little bit later today. You've got Bernie Sanders who wants to put these massive taxes in place, who wants to uh, socialize Medicare, which we can't afford, who's all for the Green Deal. And it goes on and on and on. So you've got people on the left that are now disenfranchised because as much as they like to consider themselves Democrats, they're still not fully on board with this crazy left-wing world. On the right, you've got these people that are disenfranchised with Trump because he's not living up to his promises. Or they're seeing that he ran on a platform of not having regime change, of negotiating with their enemies, of getting close to them and working out ways in which we can peacefully coexist. And now he's looking to ramp up war with Iran. He's looking to invade with Venezuela to overthrow Maduro. He's talking about continuing the war in Yemen and already vetoed a vote to keep us in Yemen. You've got war-weary Americans that are now going to be economically war-weary as well. So... Enter Justin Amash, a guy who's very well-spoken, a guy that's got a very impeccable track record, a man who knows the ins and outs of a lot of libertarian philosophy. He's not 100%, but for all intents and purposes, he is probably the most libertarian person in the House or the Senate. Not only that, he brings almost 10 years. By the time 2020 rolls around, he'll be in, have been in the House 10 years. So he brings a lot of experience. He can go toe-to-toe with people and say, look, I know how the system works and I want to change it. So in the context of his running for president, if that's the war that we're looking at happening, if that's the context it's in, then maybe I shouldn't be so upset about him going after Trump over this obstruction thing. Even though it pisses me off in the moment because now I have to continue to listen to this ongoing fucking raft of dog shit that does not goddamn matter in the overall context of all the other things going on in the world. Justin Amash is putting out one more thing to show that he's a principled individual that is not playing partisan politics. And he du- he really doubled down and tripled down on that. And he's been getting kudos from both sides of the aisle for being a man of principle that's willing to criticize a president in the GOP despite the fact that he's a member. So in the context of that, maybe this is the next step. He already said he's flirting with the idea of running. Maybe this is the first of many volleys signifying that he is going to take an aggressive front, that he's bringing his troops to bear. He's getting the lines all drawn up for his his full frontal assault and preparing himself to actually undertake a run at the 2020 presidency. And even though, like I said, Gary Johnson only got 3%, I think that Amash would get a lot of media attention because he is a current sitting congressman. I think that he'd be able to deliver the message far more adequately, far more powerfully than Bill Weld and uh, Gary Johnson ever could. And I feel like he would have a legitimate shot, maybe not at actually winning. I don't know if people are quite there yet, but making a real impact and possibly at actually inspiring people in the same way in which Ron Paul did back when he made his epic run in 2008. Either way, it'd be fascinating to see his voice out there. Uh, And I think, like I said, vital to maintain a libertarian presence in the cycles of elections, even though it's a long shot. 
And it'll be an even longer shot, guys, if he doesn't run this year. Because if we wait all the way, let's say Trump gets reelected. He goes another eight years. Let's say the economy doesn't crash. And I think it's more likely he does get elected. Now, you're going to have eight years of Trump. You're going to have, unless things go smashingly, unless the economy is uh, all the way out and, and Trump, now that he's in office, completely deregulates everything and gets us out of all the wars and brings the troops home and decides that he wants to end all the prohibitions on marijuana and all the other drugs, unless a libertarian utopia happens, we're going to see that same wave come back the other way because almost no president has ever been in office for eight years and maintained the dominance of that party. It always flips. So there's a most, basically a 0.0 chance somebody that ran after eight years of Trump from a libertarian perspective would have any traction. So I think if it's going to happen, 2020 is the time in which it needs to happen. That was 20 minutes, but hey, that's what the episode was titled. <laughs> so that's, that's the 20 minutes you got. All right, let's talk about another topic before we move on and uh, take a little break. So let's talk about Alabama. Oh, man, I, I tell you, this is, this is just sheer response. The whole Alabama thing, Alabama, Georgia, what was it, Missouri, all passed fairly restrictive abortion laws. Now, I talked about the one in Georgia and Alyssa Milano's ADSC last week. Missouri came out with one I think is very, very similar. I think it's either six or eight weeks, basically another heartbeat bill. And to be honest, I'm not really opposed to these kind of bills. I think that while I would, while I would still argue that for me, the heartbeat isn't necessarily indicative of this is now a person. For me, I, I think there's some way to be done where, in which you could look at actual brain activity. Um, and people who believe in a soul, you're going to disagree with me anyway because you'll say, well, people that are vegetables have souls and you know, they're, they might not have brain activity, but they're there. Their hearts are beating. They can still grow. They can still be alive. Technically true. But something along the lines of brain activity, I think, might be a, a meaningful way to assess whether or not somebody is living and, uh, and, and should be given that sort of um, same weight as somebody that is alive, well, thinking, talking, acting, etc. I think, therefore, I am, my good people. And obviously, feel free to disagree with me. I'm sure half the people out there disagree with me right now. But these bills that say, okay, well, once the fetus has a heartbeat, now you can't abort it. I, I don't really have that much issue with them. Because I feel like if you're out there having sex without a condom or, uh, you know, you're, you're just not really being careful as far as birth control, either way, even if you just have sex in general and then you don't have a period for two months, maybe you kind of know you're pregnant. Maybe you should check. Maybe after you're, you're banging somebody, maybe you should just have a test done just to see. I feel like there's a, the personal responsibility and the abdication of personal responsibility, which comes about so often with people when they talk from positions from the left really is on display here. You know, it's that, well, do what you want to do and the consequences be damned. Same thing with all the economic policies. You know, hey, if you don't want to work, don't worry about it. Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's point of view. Oh, well, you know, in our new Green Deal bill, if you don't want to work, you don't have to. We're going to give you money. <laughs> Great. Super. Same thing with a lot of these people, you know, on different disabilities and welfares and all the other government handouts. Well, if you don't want to do it, go ahead. Yeah, it's fine. Don't plan ahead for the future. We'll make sure that we have Medicaid and Social Security. Don't bother taking care of yourself. We're going to give you all the health care you need. Forget insurance. We're going to force people to give you insurance, guys. Fuck personal responsibility. 
Fuck educating your kids, too. Put them in government schools. We'll make sure to educate them for you, guys. Beep, boop, 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 beep, beep, boop, boop. Well, government, government robots. So again, abdication of personal responsibility. They'll argue that it is the autonomy over one's body, but I would say, you know, when there comes responsibility. Really, anything like that. If you're thinking about having sex with somebody, that's a risk in its own right, number one. And number two, I think you adopt that responsibility. I mean, when you engage in that act, you adopt a certain responsibility for what could occur from that act. And by saying, well, you can have an abortion whenever you want to have it. Have it up to 11 months. Keep that baby just dangling out of your vagina for a couple months. And then ah, bring it on over. We'll chop it off. Go stand on the edge of the roof. We'll snip it. It'll be quick. Ah, cruel, cruel abortion baby jokes, guys. Sorry. I don't know. My mind is... It's been a rough week. <laughs> but uh, anyway, takes a personal guide and responsibility. So getting back to it, though, Alabama's bill, though, is one that I stringently oppose. And the reason for this is they, have, they provide no window to have an abortion. They also don't allow you to have an abortion in cases of incest and rape. And that is absolutely atrocious, unforgivably abominable. I can't even imagine. I mean, rape is honestly one of the most heinous crimes I can think of. It makes me want to throw up thinking about anybody I know being raped. Uh, and it just is happening in general. Just anybody, not just people I know, anybody. Horrible, heinous act. Incest, horrible, heinous act. And to say that somebody can be raped or a victim of incest and to force that person to carry the child to term, I'm sorry, but no. You're going to say, Brian, well, that child's an innocent. It didn't do anything wrong. Agreed. But the person that got raped didn't do anything wrong either. And I feel like that person has every goddamn right to remove. I mean, we're talking about the non-aggression principle. What would you call basically what is an attack on your body by a foreign entity at that point? Other than a violation of the non-aggression principle. That is the case in which it was not undertaken voluntarily. Thus, in the instances of rape and in the instances of incest, that is no longer a voluntary act that now has every right to be inside that womb, every right to grow. It is not a, an innocent in the sense that it is an attack. And I remember Ovens O'Brien made this point in the last debate in which, uh, with Dave Smith and Walter Block, saying that you know, the trauma that's inflicted on a woman's body is very heavy in regards to a pregnancy. I agree. Now imagine that trauma being inflicted on you by a goddamn assault that occurred. And you're supposed to be taking that to term? Let alone the, the emotional and psychological trauma, just the, the biological trauma of incest of including the same DNA. God knows what's going to happen to that kid, how it's going to turn out, the issues it might have in general. Now you might say, still, Brian, oh, it's a life. It's got a right to live. Fine. There's no way I'm going to convert you to my point of view. But I'm sorry. If somebody raped me in my ass, I try to abort my fucking colon, guys. So I can't even imagine bringing that colon into the world, letting it walk around, talk around, go out into the world after knowing that that was done to me by an act of violence. All right. Got a lot to talk about. Let's take a quick break, and I will be back with some more Tales of Libertarian Anger. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. 
Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 125, com forward slash ELL125. Let's talk a little bit about San Francisco. I hate San Francisco. Despite the fact that my brother-in-law lives there, I loved him. My buddy Damien lives up there, love him. And in truth, if you get past all the, the homeless shit that's everywhere, you get out to maybe the, the docks area, you can have a nice Dungeness crab. You know, that's pretty. The hills are pretty. I've had some some good times there. Have refused to go back lately. But anyway, mostly, fuck that city. Fuck their idiotic politics. Fuck their idiotic policies on homeless. Fuck their idiotic economic policies. Fuck their minimum wage laws. Fuck their uh, housing laws. Just, you know, fuck them in general. But credit where credit's due, my friends. San Francisco has become the first U.S. city to ban facial recognition by government agencies. Big round of applause. That is fantastic. And, you know, a little bit surprising because I, uh, I don't know. I just figured with the tech industry being there, with all the emphasis on facial recognition technology from Silicon Valley, that they would kowtow to that huge industry sector there. But to their credit, they have not. And this is a quote coming from the legislative uh, bill that was passed. The propensity for facial recognition technology to endanger civil rights and civil liberties substantially outweighs its purported benefits, and the technology will exacerbate racial injustice. (laughs) Of course, fucking fucking San Francisco. Will exacerbate racial injustice and threaten our, our ability to live free of continuous government monitoring. Love it. Also requires city departments to submit surveillance technology policies for public vetting and needs one more vote to become final. So this is something where, again, shocking to see from San Francisco, but impressive. And hopefully this is something that's going to set a tone throughout the rest of the nation. Because we already have, you know, you go into the airport now. I can't remember who was talking about this, but you go up. If you don't have your boarding pass, you just put your face in the scanner. They scan your retina up. Go ahead in. Creepy as hell. And we're already seeing this actually play out in different countries as well. I know China's already got facial recognition. <laughs> you know, I stopped the recording trying to say facial recognition technology <laughs> the first time I made this point because I fucked it up just like that and I'm not re-recording it. Facial recognition technology. Yeah, anyway, you're already seeing it in China. You're already seeing it play out in some consumer applications. So this is something that is the focus and the future of a lot of things and how you identify yourself. Obviously, Apple already has a way in which to unlock your iPhone. Just with your face. With your stupid fat face. So boycotting and banning government organizations from using this kind of technology is fantastic. And I do agree. It would be hugely infringing on civil liberties. I mean, not only from the standpoint 
of simply knowing where you are at all times, which is terrifying from, uh, from anybody's perspective. But also, you do wonder what the next application of that would be, especially as we look to the consumer applications of this. You do wonder if the government's collecting all of our faces, all of our different ways of turning and looking and blinking, and has got all these cameras ever present, right? Because you've got CC cameras, you've got red light cameras, you've got cameras going in and out of every government building, you've got cameras going out of, you know, just whatever, everything and anything now is a camera. Not to mention the fact that the government, we already know they can hack into your systems pretty easily. So now if consumer technology is based upon facial recognition, how easy for it is the government to just get in there? If they can recreate, if they got your face on every single angle available, or they have deals with people like Apple, like a Google, like a Facebook, we already know they're in fucking bed with Facebook. So if they've already got these plans in place in which they can already mine data and mine these application technologies for facial recognition from all these software providers, how hard is it for them to get into your phone now? How hard is it to get into anything private that you're trying to use your facial recognition technology to access? Just terrifying. So anyway, good job, San Francisco. I'm not even going into about a million other applications for it, but I got to move on. You got to move on. You got to move on. By the way, until I got really busy today, I was going to record, and maybe I'll still do it. Maybe I'll do it for the Lions of Liberty Pride, our uh, group, which you can, guys, you can join at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to a few of our uh, our new subscribers, by the way. Thank you for joining, including uh, my friend Angela here in Los Angeles. Welcome aboard, Angela. But maybe I'll record it. But I was going to do, based upon this next story about Kamala Harris and her plans to equalize the gender pay gap, I was going to do a whole Bobby Brown satire song. You know that Bobby Brown song? It's my prerogative. I was going to do that with It's My Equality for Kamala Harris. It's my equality. Don't you go and get that wage gap working, bitch. I'll penalize you, yeah. Something like that. I didn't write the words down. Didn't have fucking time. Anyway, Pride, I think I'm going to do it just for you. Maybe uh, the rest of you get lucky someday. I'll release it to you. Just like my Do Nothing Man episodes. I released one publicly. I've got three of them made. I'm recording another one this week to release before the end of the month. Maybe if I get enough of those accrued, you know, in a few months, I'll start releasing them one by one uh, slowly. A drip drop effect act to the public. But if you want to get them now, again, got to join the Lions Liberty Pride, guys. And I will be doing a live Do Nothing Man reading along with some of my Liberty buddies from the Lions of Liberty. Maybe I'll see who else. Maybe a Dan Smots. Maybe a Roger Paxton get his gravelly voice up on stage maybe playing one of the villains, but uh, it's awesome, man. It's a libertarian superhero you guys know you need, and uh, I do, as of now, all the voices, so it's pretty goddamn funny <laughs> seeing, seeing me do all those stupid voices for that show. I'll link to the first one in the show notes as well. Again, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL125. But let's get into this Kamala Harris story. So she wants to punish companies that don't pay women enough. That is literally the plan. And this is basically, despite the fact that, by the way, there's already plenty of legislation on the books that says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. So what the fuck more do we need to do here? And and let's not forget California already mandated that companies have to have women board members. So, you know, did a whole episode on that a while ago, too. 
talking about how idiotic that is. So we're just going to completely uproot the, the standing boards. We're going to make sure that we, in, we get an influx of women in here, whether or not they're necessarily qualified or not. What if it's a family-owned business that happens to be run by uh, two or three men? Now, maybe maybe mom died. Maybe the sister's not in the picture. Maybe she doesn't want to be in there. Now they got to forcibly bring in an outsider to that company business. It's just so goddamn stupid. Anyway, so Harris's plan basically is based upon this. All of the companies that have over 100 employees have to submit payroll receipts to government offices to make sure that they're not discriminating, quote unquote, against women and paying them less. And what happens if you are paying them less, you might ask? Well, Kamala Harris says that for every 1% difference in the men's pay versus the women's pay, well, you get penalized. You get penalized 1% of your profits. And if it's 2%, you get penalized 2% of your profits. How insane is that? And onwards and upwards. And they already projected, according to Kamala Harris's office, they projected to raise $180 billion over a decade. I guarantee it'll be more than that. What do you want to bet? Actually, you know what? I take that back. It'll be way more than that for maybe a year. And then companies will figure out how to skirt this issue. Because you know what's going to happen here? Instead of just people saying, oh, well, we've, we love to discriminate against women. We're going to keep getting penalized. Here's what they're going to do. And this actually we've seen play out in other countries. Like uh, I think it was Denmark that did it. I think Norway did it. And you've seen the results from these kind of these kind of ridiculous government strongman tactics is that ends up just penalizing everybody because it doesn't result in a complete status of equality between women and men. What it ends up doing is actually costing men more money because women still take more parental leave. They still take more time off. They still take all these other things where they opt to work in jobs that, again, less hours than a lot of men. So instead of having the women work less and get paid less or the women that work the same amount get paid the same amount, what you end up having are policies in place wherein the men don't get paid what they're actually working anymore because they can't have that wage gap in there. So instead of having the men benefit from working more hours, working harder, working longer, or choosing to work in these jobs, which now are more dangerous or they, which are vastly overrepresented from men compared to women, like, you know, oil rigging jobs or firefighting jobs or whatever they might be, or these guys probably have worked a long time compared to the relatively new women that might be forced into these industries. Well, you just have them get paid a lot less. <laughs> so you're not really helping the women so much as you are hurting the men. Now, in this instance, though, we're not only going to see that men get paid less, but we're also going to see discrimination come into play because these companies are going to say, okay, well, if this is the case, right, and I have to pay these women an equal amount to the men, well, I'm, I'm sure they're going to look to, way, to find ways to get around that. I'm sure they're going to look at ways to say, okay, well, if I hire more women, then I have to pay all these women a lot more to equal them up to the men that have already been here or to, to, to make sure I justify these positions. So, well, maybe I just won't hire that many women. I mean, this is like, again, the unintended consequences of all these things. Whereas we always make the point, if there was a real wage gap, you would simply see companies hiring women gangbusters who are going to work it for 70 cents on the, on the dollar. But they don't. Why? Because it's nonsense. But if you put legislation like this on the books... Well, governments, or not governments, well, then companies are just going to say, all right, well, ain't hiring women then. Or you'll see a lot of, a lot of uh, companies just shady up their reporting. 
you know, look for ways to, to get around it, look for you know, to pay people off the books or look to, to skirt in ways in which they report hourly wages. I mean, there's always ways around these type of things. But in the interim, you're going to see the government go after these people tooth and nail should this ever pass to raise that money. That's what it's all about. It's not about equality. It's about raising this money or else they wouldn't put the amount of money it's supposed to raise in there. And you're going to see women find it even harder to get jobs in the workplace. So congratulations, Kamala. You are our idiot of the week. All right, next thing let's talk about, speaking of more social justice warrior bullshit, let's talk about the SAT is using a diversity score. I'm sorry, not diversity. They already use diversity for any number of things. Using an adversity score as well as SAT score results. Now, this is from a Wall Street Journal report. I am actually reading it from a Fox News report taken from the Wall Street Journal report, but the basic facts are the same. And basically what it says, this is a quote from David Coleman, the chief executive of the college board. There are a number of amazing students who may have scored less on the SAT, but have accomplished more. We can't sit on our hands and ignore the disparities of wealth reflected in the SAT. Uh, Go fuck yourself. How about that? This guy from Yale says the adversity score is affecting every application we look at. It's been a part of the process to help our diversity of our freshman class. So once again, we're seeing that people that may study hard and work hard, like, you know, again, we already saw the, the discrimination from Harvard and other top tier universities against Asians. You're seeing that play out in various other communities uh, throughout the nation as more of these programs get put into place. Now they're talking about putting not only your race as a defining factor, but now adversity. So we know it's going to be funny. We might actually see a lot of people of color going out there who may not come from the ghetto, may not come from rural fucking Alabama, may not come from Trenton <laughs> nearby where I grew up, and which is a shithole. <laughs> you now you're going to see people of color that actually came from affluent communities or maybe just suburbs like where I did grow up, you know, which are just solidly middle class, maybe even lower middle class. I don't know. I don't know what this adversity score is based on. I need to see this thing. I need to see the stats behind it to figure out what the hell they're trying to do here. But you might see marches in the streets of kids who are quote unquote privileged compared to the inner city kids going out there and saying, look, motherfucker, I worked my ass off. I'm busting my hump out here in the suburbs. You know, I might be a, a black kid in a majority white school, so I'm still, uh, you know, an outsider, if you think that that actually is a thing nowadays. And I'm sure on some level it is, in some places it is, but I don't know. Where I grew up, it wasn't. But either way, okay, so now I still dealt with my own type of hardship, my own type of adversity, but my adversity score, because I grew, happened to grow up in Connecticut, isn't as high as Chummy McGoober over there, who scored 700 points lower than me on the SAT, but because he came from a broken home and because he was in the, a certain part of town and because he was addicted to crack or whatever it is, now he's going to get into Yale and I can't get a deal. I got to go uh, to the state college up the street. And by the way, as a proud graduate of Penn State, not that I figured I need to go to Penn State, mind you, maybe probably would have been better off being a carpenter, But uh, as a proud state college graduate, nothing against state colleges, folks. But it's just, it's so stupid. 
It's so subjectively stupid, too, to go through. How would you quantify adversity? Is there a point system? If you were accidentally, if somebody tried to abort you and you lived, do you score like an extra 700 points based upon that? What happens if you lose a toe in a shootout? What happens if you killed a guy, but it was a gang-related thing, so, you know, it's not your fault. You're just a victim of your environment. And then you cleaned up and you want to go to college. What's that worth? What's it worth if you're just a Mexican and not, not an Inuit that had to grow up killing whale blubber uh, or whale blubber? I don't fucking know. It's just the insanity of this. To take away the merit-based system and this is where, you know, merit based, talking about merit-based Trump and his immigration platform, which, look, you know, quick aside, guys, and I swear to God, I'll get back to it because I meant to talk about this and I forgot to put it in my, my show notes to myself. Uh, just talking about Trump's immigration plan. I, I like the concept of having a merit-based system if that's going to increase the number of immigrants coming in. Because in truth, I know we let in a million right now. Actually, I guess maybe for the legal immigration status or standpoint, I'm torn there because I want more high, high net worth or not, well, intellectually high net worth individuals coming in. I want people that are valuable, that can provide services. I'd rather see people permitted to stay here that are graduated from colleges, that are doctors. You know, you see all these stories of like people that have been in the country for 20 years that are professors that are, they're like, there was like a Harvard professor that was booted out after 20 years because his some bullshit reason. I'd rather see those people stay. And I would rather we let in additional high-skilled workers that can stay here, that can contribute to society rather than having a brain drain where these people come, get educated, and then go home. That being said, we can't just cut off legal immigration to people that do need it. You know, it's based upon people coming here. These are the people that are coming in that are going to work hard, that are trying to make something for themselves. Not to say illegals aren't, but when you're illegal, you probably have less incentive to work as hard, maybe, because you do have all these services that are available to you. You know, you're, you're off the grid, you're not being taxed to the same amount. I don't know. Probably everybody tries hard, guys. What am I saying? But at the same time, I don't think that this immigration plan Trump's putting forth to get, bring in more high-skilled workers is going to stop illegal immigrants. Why would it? What would, what would alter them trying to come over here? As long as the economy is doing well, and really, I guess people should applaud the amount of people coming over here because the economy was doing gangbusters for so long under Trump's watch whether or not you want to give them credit or not. But people come here when the economy is booming, they leave when it's in a downturn. But I don't see what the hell any of this shit's going to do to actually alter the immigration status. Absolutely nothing. However, it is a net benefit for the country, especially when we have more jobs that need filling than we do applicants right now. So bring in that high-skilled labor, baby. Anyway, sorry about that. Back to what I was saying. Merit-based that's the way colleges should work. Look, just because you happen to be less adversely affected during your upbringing doesn't mean that you should get to leapfrog somebody who happened to be smarter, who happened to work harder. Isn't the goal of these educational institutions to provide the best educational environment for the students there? What the fuck does it do? What does it accomplish to pack classes with a bunch of people who probably don't have the same standard, the same intellect, the same education as people that were higher ranked, that have higher SAT scores, that may be from less adverse environments, but still, I'd rather have those people surrounding me in the fucking college I'm paying a shitload of money for. 
So I got to pay $200,000 worth of goddamn debt to sit around a bunch of fucking idiots? I mean, this is like the points that they were making when they're trying to add all the diversity requirements for places like Harvard Business School, where they had these, they like, I said Harvard so many times in this, it's just, but I know that just a lot of these studies come out of fucking Harvard. What can I tell you? But they did a study of like it was a Harvard Business School or the Harvard Law School. And because they brought in all these diversity quotas, you had people coming in that simply couldn't hack it. They were not up to the snuff. They were not able to. Now, whether or not that's because of their upbringing, whether or not it's because of the schooling that they went through, whether or not that's because of whatever they were able to afford, maybe they couldn't afford the same private tutors. Maybe their parents didn't read to them as much. I don't fucking know. Either way, if you're trying to force people into a system where they are simply not up to par in that system, you bring everything down in the system. You lower the goddamn standard for everything across the board, and that is not good for anybody. And that's all this is going to do. Lower the standard for everybody. And we're already seeing a lowering the standard in high school, in middle school, everywhere to push kids through because we can't have any sort of requirement. We can't have any sort of resistance. You can't have anybody actually have to fucking prove themselves and do something. No, because to do that would mean that we are a cruel society, a demanding society that has no empathy for people who might not have had it as easy as others. Or on the other hand, There's a lot of people that come from very adverse situations that worked their asses off, that found a way to do it, and still managed to succeed. Maybe we should just try to reward those people a little bit more rather than lowering the bar, giving all those other shitheads around them easy access to these universities. I guarantee that kid that's valedictorian of his class in the middle of fucking Compton doesn't appreciate this. Just a continuing downslide. All right, moving on. Last thing, let's talk about, actually two quick things. Number one, Ben Carson wants to kick out illegal immigrants from federal housing. And of course, the left is saying that he is a cruel and horrible man, an individual with a heart like steel. He's like the Grinch, but he's black instead of green. Is the Grinch even green? I don't know. Jim Carrey played him at one point. Does that make him white? White on the inside, green on the outside. He's like blue cheese. A little bit hairy. Stinky, but delicious. But anyway, Ben Carson's stance is, hey, we have 4 million people in this country waiting to get access. And I think I'm quoting that correctly. Let me double check myself. But I believe it's 4 million people waiting to get access to publicly subsidized housing. Yeah, 4 million U.S. citizens seeking HUD-subsidized housing. Meanwhile, he wants to book uh, give the boot to 32,000 illegally occupied, or I guess legally occupied. I, I don't know how they, I don't know how they get into there if they're not legal citizens in the first place, by the way, very confusing. But 32,000 federally subsidized households would be subject to evictions because they are illegal residents. Now, they may have U.S.-born children there, but they are legal residents themselves. And Ben Carson's standpoint, standpoint, Ben Carson's standpoint is take care of ourselves first. That is his direct quote. Take care of the U.S. citizens primarily. And these people would also have 18 months. They can defer their eviction for 18 months while they find new housing. I side with Ben. Taxpayers, citizens should have first access to that. Not that I'm necessarily a huge fan of federally subsidized housing, but if it exists, 
It should be going to the people that are actually paying for it. It should go into U.S. citizens. It should not be going to illegal aliens. Just one more symptom of the welfare state. One more example of how this does impact actual U.S. citizens via undocumented immigration. So I side with you, Ben. These people can have 18 months to find a fucking home. Give them the boot. Done. All right. Let's end it on a high note. New Ukrainian president, former comedian Vladimir Zelensky was sworn into office on Monday. And he said one of the first things he's going to do would be to dissolve parliament. I love it. He said he's going to dissolve parliament, which I know. Now, I I know, uh, guys, I would not be thrilled if a president could simply go in and dissolve all of the, uh, the elected parliament either. But in this context, I like that he said, all right. I'm getting rid of everybody. It's his power. He can do it. He's getting rid of people. He's going to have a new election to choose new lawmakers. He says, government, listen to this quote. Oh my God, listen to this quote. I'm going to get a huge, huge Liberty Rager. Rage a Liberty Boner. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem, said during his inauguration speech. Of course, quoted Ronald Reagan, who many people wrongfully worship, but he had his moments, I guess. And he also said he wants to call on legislators to adopt new anti-corruption laws, including measures that would strip legislators of their immunity from prosecution. Yeah. And increase transparency. Very, very nice. Additionally, you're going to love this. He also wants to get rid of the lackluster economic aspects brought about by tariffs. Lovely. He also wants to end all of the wars and the bloody conflicts with the Ukraine. Lovely. And one of the things I truly, truly appreciated, because it really echoes my own sentiments about governments, about presidents, about leaders in general. Listen to this fantastic quote. I really do not want my pictures in your offices, for the president is not an icon, an idol, or a portrait. Hang your kids' photos instead and look at them each time you are making a decision. God damn right, Vladimir. Well said. That's the thing that has become so apparent in the last eight years, hasn't it? Last 12 years. People complaining about Trump view him as the president as if that fucking means anything. He's just a guy. He's just an asshole who got elected by a bunch of other assholes, just like Obama was just a guy. People worshipped Obama. He was a fucking piece of shit. He was a backstabbing snake who lied about his promises during the campaign, who lied about war, who lied about domestic spying, that ran guns with people, that lied about, about Obamacare, that bombed his own citizens. Trump, also terrible. Getting worse every day. And people somehow think that these presidents embody them. They don't embody you. They don't embody who you are. They don't stand for you. When you go abroad, Donald Trump does not stand in front of you. You don't follow behind him. He's not a fucking placard you hold up in front of your face like a Donald Trump doll. He has nothing to do with you. Not an idol. Not an icon. Good job, Vladimir. Now, it remains to be seen some of his other things. I do think he might have some socialist leanings. We'll see what he tries to roll out there. But so far... I love this man. So keep up the good work, you comedian. All right, and I'll keep my good work as a comedian right here on Electric Liberty Land. That's going to do it for the show, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Want to remind you, 
Mark Claire on Mondays just had uh, Anthony Samaroff on. Love old Anthony, the Scottish libertarian. He went at it with Dr. Wolf, who is a, an avowed Marxist. And a man is a teacher, which is sad for all of us. But Anthony, uh, I would say, roundly defeated him. And uh, I'm looking forward to part two. The Marxist versus the Libertarian. So listen to the last show Mark did. Also, Odie had his version of Lions in, excuse me, Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor. He had on, uh, God, who did he have on? Rico and Howie and JB talking <laughs> mostly foreign policy, but they got into a little bit of Felony Friday stuff. So check that out as well. Of course, Mark is every Monday's. Odermat is every Friday's. I'm every Wednesday. Otherwise, guys, that's going to wrap it up. For me, Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged into liberty. <laughs>